Hi, and welcome to the Flip Flops podcast. So this is the second episode of 40% Facts, which was born on a girl's road trip from Montreal to New York City. The four of us were in the car and we were laughing because one of us was saying that one of our husbands would get really frustrated with us when we were having an argument saying that you never bring all the facts to the table. You only ever bring 40% facts to the table. And it became a running joke on our trip. And we jokingly said one day we should have a show called 40% Facts. And that really stuck with me. So I decided to make it happen. And I'm so honored to have these women with me opening up and having this incredible conversation that they always manage to transform me in some way and make me feel better. It's therapeutic. It's liberating. And today we talk about busting shame and fear and what do boundaries mean and why are they important. And we also get into what success means for us and what are the questions that we should be asking to figure that out. So I hope you enjoy it. It's 40% Facts. Ladies with an attitude. Don't just stand Hello. there. Let's get to it. Strike a pose. There's nothing to it. <laughs> you can go play your video game. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm so I'm so sorry. I thought I thought it would be a simple transaction, but it's turning out not to be. It never is. Uh, it never is with uh, the little ones. They know. They have a knowing. Know. <laughs> really, but wait, now I don't want to do the thing I originally wanted to exactly. do. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. We seem to be okay. Okay. How's everyone doing? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Good be, morning. Be easier. Good morning. Forty percent facts. Forty percent. You might be right. You might not be. You made your point. Hopefully. <laughs> okay here we are I thought I'd start off with we can just skip right over how everyone's doing on a Monday morning at 9 a.m and let's go right into transitioning back to real life and so I'm just going to share my story of not being able to talk anymore or like socialize I've completely lost that ability and so I was at a cafe and I was ordering a coffee and I couldn't say the words in the right order and I just I couldn't I couldn't talk and I'm just wondering if if you guys have had any experiences with reintegrating into real life. Um, I might have asked a friend couple if they wanted to have a threesome because I'm so awkward. <laughs> I'm so awkward. I've made so many social faux pas. I'm not oh even going to share them because I'm too embarrassed. He but was it's like, like my... it was terrible. But like the husband was saying like how handy he was. And I was basically like, how do I get into this marriage? And I basically <laughs> offered myself up for the taking. <laughs> <laughs> and did they did they take you up on that offer or is well, that private? Well, um, I don't know them that well, and so it was even more <laughs> awkward. And I love their daughter story. is actually flying to BC to come and stay with my with me and my family, and I was like, I wonder oh, if they'll okay. actually book the tickets now. I'm not sure. So you're playing the long game, <laughs> lure them into the house, and then sneak sneak into no, bed with them. Basically, I'm not ready for the outdoors yet. No, me neither. I shouldn't be allowed out of the house. I, I don't know how to talk to people. Um, I went to an improv class that reopened. And so can you imagine nobody having social skills <laughs> and then add an improv class on top of that? Smooth. I'd say the word is smooth. 
was, everyone was exhausted about five minutes in. Like, how do we do this? And also just, I mean, some of the scenes that I was in, one of them was so ridiculous because I just had no idea. So I was like, cool, I'll just follow whatever this person's idea is. And they didn't have any ideas either. So we just basically stood up on stage doing next to nothing as possible for about five or six minutes. Um, And so... It was very funny. Like it was the whole evening was very funny because it was like awkward on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. It's everybody. I, I just sure. I just go home embarrassed. I'm like, I need to be locked up again. <laughs> I can't be let out. What about you, Emmeline? I had um I had an interaction with my business partner um, <laughs> I'd say like a couple weeks ago where we were having a conversation and for some reason we were both incredibly awkward despite the fact that we speak to each other every day but this mm-hmm. was a in-person conversation and just in the middle of the conversation I got up and I said I'm leaving now and I just walked out <laughs> of her house and I drove home and was mortified because, I mean, this person is so close to me in my life. And so I called her back and I said, I'm so sorry. That was so awkward. And she was like, I'm so sorry. I was so awkward. And we had this hilarious, how, who was most awkward in that conversation? But I win because I literally just left <laughs> mid-conversation. <gasps> okay so we're all in this together yeah also I think there's like this energy that's required in being social and I don't know that we understood how much energy we were using all the time when we were socializing so now I often just find myself exhausted like I'm like oh my god this is a lot of work being (laughs) social There's no screen. There's no like faceless interaction to hide behind. Yeah, I think the screen allows a certain level of non-engagement. So yeah, you're... like you can kind of sit back, you know, yeah. you can sit back and observe. Whereas when you're in a conversation with someone else, like you have to participate and use parts of the brain that we just haven't been using. Yeah, all of those different body language cues that we, I think are <laughs> supposed to pick up on. <laughs> Maybe we all need to just go back to like first dating and like hit a movie with someone first. Like that's how we slip back in. <laughs> yeah. True. We go to a movie. So there's not really a lot of talking just before and after. And then we move on oh to coffee. Oh my God. Oh, that's good. That's okay. I like that. That's really good. Yeah. So, um, so I'm going to transition into the topics I wanted to cover today. And I realize they're not light. So I don't have specific questions because I don't want to, I don't want to prompt people. I just want to, or, or kind of lead you anywhere. But what I'll say is I thought about it and I think we should share kind of best practices that we've learned or tips that we've heard along the way to kind of deal with these things that come along the way, like fear, shame, lack of confidence. So one quote I want to share about shame is our Brene that we love so much. Well, I do anyway, the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is thinking that you've done something wrong and shame is thinking that you that something is wrong with you I'm misquoting but that's the essence of it so I'm just wondering if anyone's willing to talk about maybe what makes them feel shameful or feel shame I know for me when I felt really lost during the pandemic I blamed myself and felt shame like I should have had a plan for this or whatever and it really took me a while to 
to come out of that and say, uh, no, no one can plan for this. We're all doing our best and it's okay to feel a little bit lost and let yourself be human and feel vulnerable. So it, I had to have empathy. And that's what she says is kind of the antidote to shame is having empathy for yourself. So who wants to go next in terms of like, maybe something that's made you feel shame in the creative process or in your career, and then how you got over it? You mean other than that threesome offer that I put up there? <laughs> yeah, other than yeah. the threesome offer. <laughs> so how did so, you get over your shame? Or are you still so in many it? things? Okay. <laughs> Jeez, this is a tough one. This is like not a, this is a tough Monday morning slip in here. Yeah, I think, yeah, sorry, Susanna, I hope I'm not like, no, please do, please do. No, 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 go. Like, now that I've been in therapy for a while, it's just so often it comes up how much shame and guilt there is and a lot of stuff. So I don't know that I can zero in on one particular thing. I think there's just a cloud of uh, shame and guilt spirals all the time. So understanding when that's happening and always for me it's a tied to boundaries and understanding my body and its limits I'm a workaholic so propelling myself to work all the time allows me to disengage from a whole bunch of other stuff and not feel the shame and guilt that's sort of ever present. But it's important for me to stop and acknowledge those feelings and understand the boundaries that I'm breaking all the time so that I can give myself space. And as you're saying, Angelique, just be kinder in, in general to myself and, and respect myself a little bit more. That I think dismantling that it's very complicated because it's hard to identify until you're, for, for me, until I'm articulating myself and then I realize how much I'm apologizing all of the time for mm. a myriad of behavior, you know, to my therapist. And he's like, <laughs> I don't really know you. So why are you apologizing? <laughs> but yeah, it's that kind of thing. I'll piggyback on what Annabelle just said, because that was really, I think you hit the nail there of, of boundaries and its connection to shame. And how when you cross your own boundary, I feel a lot more shame when I cross my own boundaries, as That's opposed I mean. to when boundaries are crossed by other people for me. I did a lot of work over the last couple of years and and I for me and this might not be a popular subject but for me shame was also really bound up with alcohol and food consumption and so mm. I had noticed that when I engaged in drinking I often felt huge amounts of shame you know in the following days that would kind of last even you know 2 3 days and that was a real signal that took me a long time to kind of tune into that I was crossing my own boundary. And so that work was really, really important to me. And then once I kind of did that work around alcohol, I could do that work around food and body, that body shame is a real thing that happens not only within yourself, but by society and culture. And yeah. so much of that had been internalized in my upbringing and in myself, that doing the work around boundaries for yourself was just so, so, so important to be able to release that shame, that kind of shame that's been, you know, carried around for, I mean, how old are we? Let's not answer that question. We're 25. But... <laughs> 25. <going laughs> 20 years at least. So yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and that was really, really powerful. And I have to say that I don't, now that I've worked through those two really big hurdles for myself, and I think that those will be different for everyone, that I feel a lot less shame 
and a lot less guilt um, because I'm much more aware of when I'm crossing my own boundaries and having compassion for myself when I do and to be able to course correct as well. So I think a lot of it has to do with doing that inner work, either with a therapist or, you know, with a trusted person or with a book. Um, Glennon Melton Doyle, like her work for me was a really big um, shame eye opener. So can you share some specific because we all love Glennon. I mean, she's such a beautiful, beautiful person and such a I don't know her. I haven't read her yet. People have dropped like I've been loaned her books and stuff, but I haven't actually read them. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Uh, that's me avoiding help. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, you think this will help me? No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. What was your question, Angelique? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for opening it up past just creativity and career and really into the personal. So I really appreciate that. Your statement about crossing your own boundaries is something I hadn't even thought about. So I'm. I'm going to think about that. But I wanted to know if there was any passage or. I mean, I just, I love quotes. Was there anything specific about what Glennon Doyle said that really led you to have an eye-opening aha moment? Or was it a lot of work over a lot of time? But was there kind of one thing that said, oh, that got your attention and that really spoke to you? Yeah, of course. I can't pin it down to like one specific moment, but I do remember I was at this specific point in my life and she had just written, it wasn't Untamed, but it was her first kind of big book and I can't remember what it's called so we'll have to add that to show notes or whatever and I listened to the audiobook and it was mostly about how she got sober and also it dealt with her sexuality it dealt with her sobriety and it also dealt with her eating disorder and it was the first time that I had heard someone speak so openly and so shamelessly about those things because those things had been really really taboo for me and I had always understood that that was a problem that I had that that was my inability to cope with certain things um, that led me to those kinds of behaviors and Mm. so to hear someone else address them so openly and so neutrally without them being charged as being bad or good was just an absolute I'd say like yeah that was the game changer for me and that led me on to a whole bunch of other things Um, but back to the boundaries I have to say that the best analogy for the boundaries that I've heard is that you live in your home, right? So you are your home and you have a fence around your home. So you can choose to leave your home, which is breaking your own boundaries, or you can choose to let people into your home. But so boundaries are about staying within your own confines and basically defining what those confines are for you and making sure that you respect them just as much as it is about having other people respect them. Yeah, Emily and I really resonate with that because a lot of the time I'm breaking my own boundaries and less yeah. so about other people breaking mine. Like I feel it's it's often much clearer to me when other people are breaking my boundaries and that's from past work I've done when going to Al-Anon and the addiction sort of part of my family history but on the flip side often I find that the and this can tie back Angelique to work is that my relationship with work is so intense that I have a lot of shame stopping so there's always this 
real resistance to allow myself space to relax, to spend time with my family, to do anything for myself, because I feel like work is never really done. And that, to me, was a big signal that there's a real dysfunction going on there that I can't watch Netflix without feeling tremendously guilty and then and then ashamed, you know, and that's, that's not okay. Like this kind of obsession with work is work will never be done. So especially if you're an entrepreneur. So it's knowing, you know, what's okay to let go of for the day and allow yourself to have the rest of the day and turning your brain off of all of those things as well. So that's been a real learning curve for me. And then oddly, like unconsciously, I've been allowing myself space a lot more, which is which has been good. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, I'm, that's a really amazing quote, Emmeline. I'm just really sitting with that because I know for me, I have moments where I say, is it okay to just stay in my house? So I'm going to explore that a little bit more. And, you know, Annabelle, I hope you let yourself watch more Netflix. It's really <laughs> important. Haven't... <laughs> next and you have to list, watch I guess, Halston. Halston. Yeah, I guess you have to watch my Halston. next one. You and McGregor. Yeah, I haven't sat down yet this weekend to do that because I've been busy working. So see, look, listen, I'm still really in the nascent phase of trying to give myself space. Yeah, we're a work in progress. Yeah, and there's also there's a big part of that that's just kind of like culturally assumed of women at this point, right? So it's kind of like we've been quote unquote like liberated from domestic work. Um, yet just enslaved in financial work. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's no different. It's the same. It's the same type of prison. It just looks a little bit different and you might have a little bit more choice around it. But that it pressure of constantly earning money, you know, like moving forward, growth, all of those things, I think that those are inherently damaging to our creativity. Yet it is the only construct that we've been able to socially accept for the expression of creativity is if it becomes, you know, a monetized action. Yeah, exactly. I want to move on to fear. Can you share something that makes you afraid and how you deal with it? So I'll go first. I have a lot of fears. I have fears of making mistakes. I have fears of new things. I learned to deal with that by... Again, it always comes back to empathy and saying it's like learning how to walk. Like, would you yell at a one-year-old who's learning how to walk? No, you'd say, take little baby steps and go for it one little step at a time. And so I always try to parent myself and give myself empathy through the fear and just say, you're afraid because it's new and that's okay, but you're also excited and just take it one step at a time. And when I do that and kind of break things down, they become less overwhelming. That's my little trick. I think for me, I, I just, I went through an experience a couple years ago where I had to do something kind of scary and confront an employer for stealing. And he was part owner in the business business. And it was like a sting operation. It could have been part of the CIA, FBI, like the way it all went down was pretty diabolical. And the rush and the fear that that gave me, like it was actual body fear to mm. go forward mm. and to confront these people and to stand up to someone who was like a huge bully was probably really one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And that rush of that fear kind of has become addictive for me. I actually search out now more of the things that kind of scare me and go for them because it kind of woke me up from like whatever kind of routine in life that I had been living. And now mostly the fear that I chase is on more of a positive level, but it's kind of, it's kind of exhilarating. So you're not really moving to BC, you're moving to London. 
007. <laughs> I'm moving somewhere that's just new and different and, and it's scary. I'm moving next to my mother. That's the scariest thing I've ever done. <laughs> you see, you see what I've done? I'm like, I can't stop. Full circle, I'm like but you're ready. <laughs> you're ready this time yeah we'll see about that she is so scary <laughs> uh, but does anyone else like that feeling of fear sometimes? I would just if I can jump in I just want to say like for me that's what bravery is you know and I do find that pushing past your own fears is the most exciting thing and once you start doing it it's like a muscle and you just start feeling like a horse where you're like I can do this I can run faster I can jump over things and so it's all about you know taking that first step and doing that first scary thing and then you realize oh I can do that and then I can figure it out and I can make mistakes and you know the world keeps going even if you make mistakes so for me yeah of course it's a huge rush it's it's part of why I started this podcast because I was terrified and I was like good like for me that's an indicator of what direction to take exactly yeah I feel like there's a part of me that always kind of chases that stuff on a personal level every wedding that I go to, I spend the morning and maybe the day before in absolute terror. Do I know how to do this? Can I press a button on a camera? Do I remember how to focus? Like, can I talk to people? You know, there's this, this, and then I run through all of the different ways it could go wrong so that I feel like maybe I'm ready for the wedding day. And I think that that feeling is here to stay. I don't know that that's going to disappear. And certainly with other wedding photographers that I've spoken to, they would dread not feeling that feeling, that there would be something wrong Mm. if they didn't have that fear leading up to the wedding. It's like you really want to do a good job. And I think part of doing that good job is having that fear so that you can make sure that you've run through all of your equipment, made sure you've had a backup plan should this timeline not work or this location be raining, you know, like that kind of thing. So that kind of fear is really important to my job, I think. It's still terrible to feel, but it does get me in motion to make sure I've covered all of my bases twice. But what you're mentioning, Sue, I read something once, and this really has stuck with me for a very long time, where our cell biology stops evolving uh, in our 30s, and our cells stay the same. And he, the writer, was saying he thinks it's really important at that point for us to push ourselves to uncomfortable places because staying in our comfort zone leaves us closed to new experiences, closed to new ideas. We end up in this pattern of what's comfortable, what we know, what we understand. And if we stay in that cycle, then we refuse to evolve or understand those who are younger, those who are older. It becomes this little bubble. And I think it's really important that whether you're pushing yourself to a new physical activity, reading a book that you wouldn't necessarily read, watching a show that you wouldn't watch maybe picking up Glennon Doyle when someone drops it off for you you know like that kind of thing (laughs) I think those things are important you know saying yes when your instinct is to say no although I think no is a very important thing too so it's that fine line Mm. it's just I do think that without fear you're not allowing yourself the chance of some type of change or openness yeah good point Mm. I have to say for me, fear 
I am a person that I think is because I think there's a difference between fear and risk, right? So I'm a person that can accept risk relatively easily in my life. I'm not Mm -hmm. very risk adverse. And so I can make decisions where outcomes are uncertain and not feel that fear. But I've noticed that what I am most afraid of is discomfort in so many different areas. But in my creative practice, and this has kind of been really glaringly obvious to me throughout this pregnancy, these last like eight months, was in the creative process, there's the discomfort of creating something that does not match the standard or the taste that you've developed. And that discomfort for me was something that for some reason, I just I couldn't face over the last eight months. And it just kept on coming up and coming up and coming up that it was just so unbearable that I didn't want to push through it to see what was on the other side. And so there's a couple problems with that. A is that I assumed that the work that I would produce would not match my standard. So that's like a false assumption because you never know what's going to happen. And once I did finally overcome that fear of discomfort, which was almost the fear of losing my own kind of sense of creative self became greater than the fear of that discomfort. And that's kind of what pushed me to just kind of face the blank canvas and the dirty brushes and the mess of what that process looks like to kind of just do it anyways. And what happened? Oh, I will go back to you, Annabelle. Yeah. Um, I put together 12 pieces that I am super, super proud of, um, which I, you know, was really surprised by. And it was over a long period of time. And it was these small kind of steps that kind of led to larger work. And it was prompted by reading Tilly Olson, who's a feminist writer in the 60s and 70s, who really bemoaned creativity in the literary world for women. And I read two chapters of that and I was like, not me. And that was what I needed, right? Like I needed something from the external to pull me out of that fear of discomfort. Right. Emily, prior to you actually standing in front of the canvas, did your fear and you're just putting yourself there, did it just live in your head? Were you showing up and then like externally, what did that look like? Were you just avoiding your room or what were you doing? No. So I would sit in my studio every morning where I go to paint and every morning I would just sit there and not paint. And I did this every day. Every weekday, months, I'd say. The last time I picked up a paintbrush was December. And then I started painting again mid-April. So Mm -hmm. that's five months. So five months of sitting there, writing morning pages, looking outside the window, looking at the paintbrushes and the paints and not painting. Which is if you want to torture someone, that's a really (laughs) good way of doing it, by the way. I find that really interesting. I do think I feel like there is this part of my creative cycle where I will avoid the thing I really need to be doing. And I can get really easily stuck in the administrative and largely, you know, work that's always going to be their work and not do the creative part. And then when I finally hit go, it's like, why was I not doing this? This is where this is where I live. This is what I love doing. So I find that interesting. But I think both of those are also really necessary. Like, I think that those, I think we talked about this last time, like that period of dormancy is really important, right? And that discomfort that you end up feeling that grows inside of you is eventually the, you know, the little alien inside of you that pushes you out, you know, and actually makes you do that thing. And that if it, if that never happened, 
would you actually produce the work that you're producing? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's a part of that that comes to the release inside of your mind that you need to have in order to do your work. So like, if you're harbored by a lot of things that are going on in there, like things that you need to get done, or, you know, just like nagging, it's, it's hard to feel creative in that space. So it's almost important to get that like administrative part done so that the weight of that work Mm. is kind of gone. And the same with even just a dry spell in terms of painting, like you can't constantly be feeling inspired. So you need to like take that space, open up and let it come to you, right? Like you need to just go through the motions of life until it's that time. And you know, it's it's like the, the silliest thing is even comes to me when I'm running. Like I just can't be one of those people that gets up in the morning, puts on my sneakers and goes for a run. There's like a whole list of things that have to be done in my mind <laughs> before mm-hmm. I can get out that door. Basic things like I need to eat at least a half an hour before I need to do and like once all those things are checked off then I'm like okay good I'm ready to go now Mm -hmm. I think that that's really that's really true and that comes with you know self-introspection and kind of knowing yourself of what it is that you need to get done and some people will use those things as a barrier to entry and some people it's a legitimate thing like you actually cannot engage in that without having taken care of those two things so I think it's important to know when are you actually stumbling yourself like when are you putting blocks in place for yourself and when are you genuinely in that kind of rest and recharge time and those are hard to it's really hard to figure out yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. I want to ask a question. <clears throat> nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to frame it. So my next topic that, that I want to talk about is giving up versus persistence and finding the faith to keep going. So have you ever had a moment where you said, I'm just going to give this up because it's either not going as I want or I find it too hard every day to face the voices in my head, or I'm not seeing the results that I want, and I'm just going to give up. And I'm wondering how you push through that and keep going and what calls you back to the camera slash canvas slash sneakers, whatever it is, what keeps calling you back? Ooh, can I start with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Because I think that there's real validity sometimes in being able to, and I think Annabelle will be able to speak to this as well, of being able to clearly say like, this isn't working and I'm going to give this up. You know, that that's not always a bad thing. And I think that some people go through lots of different things and have to quit lots of different things before they can get to the thing that they'll eventually end up doing. And that there should be no shame in that quitting. And I think that we have like a culture right now that's like push and hustle and hustle and never give up that I think is really detrimental because you can stick with a really terrible idea for a really long time before it's made glaringly obvious that you needed to quit this five years ago. So I think that there's that fine balance between those two worlds of like persisting, even though it's difficult and then ignoring the reality that something is not working for you. Yeah, there's benefits to both of those things. And I think being able to let yourself rest and recharge to be able to then continue is super important. And also checking in with yourself and being like, is this actually helping me? Is this something that's feeding me? Is this something that's good for me? Or is this something that I've invented in my head as the thing that I should be doing? You know, Mm -hmm. and those are really hard questions to ask yourself. 
So I'm not answering your question, but you know. No, I think you did though, Emmeline. Like, I think that the example I can provide for that is my last job prior to going back to photography was a job that on paper looked like everything I've ever wanted, which is, you know, working in a creative agency, being able to travel, staying in hotel rooms, going out for dinner with clients, all of the kind of things being paid, a, you know, a good salary that matched Dave's salary. You know, there was a whole list of things that tick, it ticked all of the boxes. What I w- wasn't prepared for was that I envied the creative team in a way that I hadn't been familiar with for a while. I think I'd been so out of the game but that by going back to photographers' uh, studios and sets and being a part of the the sort of process with art directors really reminded me of how much I missed that space and how much I was discredited because my title was a, an account director and not a creative director. And it really hurt me a lot. And then also the physicality of work for me is is real and I internalize stress in a lot of ways that I ignore and I'm still suffering the consequences of right now. I ended up going on stomach pills during that time because I was internalizing a whole bunch of stress that I was ignoring and am now trying to go off of those pills and alter my diet so that I can hopefully get rid of whatever it is that's going on with me. But I think it's like I was ignoring my body so much. All of these warning signs were coming up. I was going to doctor's appointments, taking prescriptions, getting biopsies, all of these things that were running myself into the ground. And I think it's so funny looking back on how easy I ignored all of those signs because I thought I was doing what I should be doing in my own brain. And the option of going back to photography seemed so elusive um, until one day where I just, my whole body broke down And I was like, this is over. I don't know what this means, but this version of my life is over. And I kind of went numb all over and really truly burnt out at that moment. Mm. And I don't recommend that path. So if there's a way that anyone can potentially listen to themselves and their body and really stay in tune to that, like a lot of the therapy I do now is just listening to where those feelings are being held in my body. And I think that that's so important to to be in tune with yourself and making those changes then moving forward feels a lot more integrated into what you should be doing. So how did you say yes to photography? It was a long discussion I had with Dave and he said, you know, take the year, update your skills. And I did. I mean, I, I, the one thing I can rely on is that on myself is that I will do the work. So there's there's no fear of that. Me, it's like, how far will I take that work? But mm. I showed up every day and sat in those creative live classes, practiced on old photographs, took new photographs, little jobs started trickling in and I took them and then got my first wedding just by accident. And that really felt like the best fit for me moving and forward. Then, like, was the goal always to make it your job? I didn't I know. I imagine there was a transition from I need to explore this to yes, this can be my new identity, my new job. Like, how did you say yes, this is how I want to take the risk and I want to jump into this and say, this is what I want 
want to do for a living? Well, it was baby steps. I remember people saying, oh, you have a wedding? Does that mean you're a wedding photographer now? And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I was saying yes to any job that required a camera and seeing how that felt. And a lot of it was just headshots and event photography and just anything that anyone felt like they could entrust me with I was like okay cool yes I will do that I was very nervous to enter into the world of wedding photography because I knew I had such a long road ahead of me to become a really good one and I wasn't sure that I could get there I was really in the small like when I was in art school doing photography wedding photography was like basement that's where maybe the lowest of the low photographers went and that culture has really changed in a lot, in 20 years and so when I did my first wedding I was really excited about it it had a whole variety of elements that really speak to who I am and the type of photography I love and that it really felt like a match so I don't know that I realized that I could do it until I did my first wedding and then it felt really easy to say yeah that's where I'm going to go I remember leading up to it I just wasn't sure mm. I don't know if that answers your question yeah absolutely yeah yeah I just I I want to kind of throw out there that transition to finding a new identity and then how do you put your ego aside to let yourself explore something and be uncertain can you offer an example Angelique I think this whole process for me is I found myself kind of wanting to have the identity of writer, which is why I started my blog and I did that for several years. And then I really found myself questioning if this was, you know, if the identity of writer mm. was right for me. And I didn't really pinpoint the word identity until I started writing about am I a writer <laughs> uh -huh. and kind of talking to other people about it. And then I realized like, oh, part of that shift is kind of letting go of something that we've created for ourselves. And I remember years ago having a conversation with Emmeline where she was, where she shared, I don't know that I can call myself an artist. And yeah. from my point of view, I said, uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> like, ever since I've known you, I've known you're an artist. But for her, it was really hard to put that hat on and, mm -hmm. and embody it and allow herself to really, you know, whatever that process is. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think sometimes it can be really obvious from the outside, but we can sit in a struggle for years. And I know the past few months for, be for me has been about that. And I don't have the answer yet, but there's something about doing things for yourself versus doing things career wise. And sometimes also, they can get in, they can get entangled. And I think mm -hmm. we can not let ourselves just do things because we love doing them. And I heard a great quote on Clubhouse <clears throat> last week, which is really what it comes down to for me is what are the things that you just can't stop doing? And for me, I've kind of decided I don't care what my identity is. I don't care what my title of what you want to call what I do is. I just know that I'm creative and I need to be doing creative things and pushing boundaries. And so ego and identity for me are not helpful and mm -hmm. I'm letting go of them and I'm just doing the things that I can't stop doing and doing them when I want to do them. That's it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think it's interesting how we sometimes will be like, well, I can't do that because I'm this. And that is so limiting. And I mean, for me personally, going all the way back to the first conversation in the beginning, first question you asked was about shame. And I feel like I have throughout my life and creative journey always had to apologize and explain away the jobs that I did for money. Mm. 
I don't know why, because it's, it's a strange thing, because there, I guess it's something that I need to work through, because I actually don't feel shame in being a waitress. I don't feel shame in that I managed a gym. And I don't feel shame now that I like sell spandex for Lululemon. Like I loved every single one of those jobs <laughs> for many different reasons. But yet, in the creative world, I've always just felt like I needed to explain like, this is how I make money or because you know, when I was a fashion designer, it was like, well, you know, I'm working in the atelier right now as a cutter like I couldn't say that I was a cutter I cut patterns and I always had to like fancy it up with atelier and it was like why am I doing that these are all steps to a bigger path and a better road and like it's a strange thing because I'm not ashamed within myself but I feel like I have to explain it to people because they won't understand it (laughs) I feel like, you know, you get asked that question when you're little, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What's your job going to be? And there's so much pressure. And I just wonder if we need to rephrase that question. Oh, for sure. I absolutely think so. So what do you think is the alternative question? Is it? How do you you like to spend your time? Yeah. What do you like doing? What do you like doing? What like gives you that high of not only that, but why does it have to be one thing? Like, why can't we have five to 10 different careers or I just found there was always the shame between like this is your job and this is your hobby like god I hate that word hobby um I think so it so takes away from that thing that you're doing for yourself like it belittles it at least for me that's maybe that's my own thing but I don't know I just think we need to change the question I totally agree, Angelique. And I think that we're in that transition right now. And I think where we are culturally in the world and, and what technology has brought to us that's going to permit us to change that question. I think this idea that we had to, quote, unquote, earn a living. Do you know what I mean? Like just those words, earn a living, like you don't have to earn your life. Mm-hmm. Like, Whoa. You have a life. I'm going to add a crazy sound effect here. <laughs> sound effect, actually. <laughs> but like, how devastating is that? That we grow up with this idea that we we have to earn it, that we have to owe our lives to someone else. Oof. And that historically, that other person that pays your wages, right, is not the same person as you. Anyways, that's a whole other, I think that that's a whole other kind of conversation. But yeah, I think that we're at the cusp where we're changing that right now because technology and the idea of being able to work anywhere in the world is really going to change that. And I think our kids are really going to benefit from that and that their schooling model that they are going through right now is not adequately preparing them for what this kind of like polyhyphenate life is going to be. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot less about choosing what your one career is going to be as opposed to like, how are you going to respond to what is happening in the world? You know, that's such a better kind of way of figuring out how you want to be, you know, where do you want to take action? Um, What kind of people do you want to be surrounded by? What are the causes that are important to you? Where do you see yourself enacting change? I think are all much better questions than what do you want to do when you grow up? Because frankly, you know, I know women in their 70s that don't know what to be when they're going to grow up, right? Because that's just how we're living right now. I had one teacher say to me when I was at Concordia and Communications, he said, just keep learning. And that at the time was very uncomfortable because I said, wait a minute, 
I'm doing my university degree. You're telling me that I'm not done. <laughs> but then there was another, you know, huge part of me that just had that knowing of, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we're just never done, right? So to your point of like, how are you going to keep responding as the world changes? I think that flexibility and that resilience is the number one thing that we will need. And I think this whole pandemic has really shown us our readiness levels. Yeah, I Angelique, I had a guidance counselor and I grew up throughout high school thinking I'm going to be a marine biologist and took all of my classes that geared myself towards becoming that and was a sea cadet and so on, like really, really hyper focused and married to that idea. And then I was failing organic chemistry and didn't matter how many tutors I had or how much studying I did. I just it was a concept that was beyond me. And it was so frustrating because it defied the normal application of if I apply myself, I will get an A plus. It just mm. didn't work. And then I decided that that meant I could no longer be a marine biologist. And so I was sitting with the guidance counselor devastated by this decision I'd made. And he's, he was like, you know, there's no losing here. Anything that you've learned and you've decided you're going to mm. change in your path doesn't mean that it's a waste. It just means it gets added into how informed you are and what you can bring creatively through all of the other things that you've learned to the thing that you're now doing. So it doesn't really matter if you course correct and make changes and evolve into new spaces because all of that experience and history follows you and informs the new thing, no matter what it is that you're doing and adds that certain interesting arc because you've had all of those varied experiences. And I think that often gets downplayed. And the most pe interesting people I know are those who have had the many different paths that have led them to their new thing that might turn into a new path in itself. And I don't know why we don't talk about that more often in school. Like I said, uh, like Emmeline was saying, I think it's a very archaic way that we're teaching our children. It right is now. like even in university, yeah. you have to pick arts versus science versus business versus yes. psychology and, and social. And it's, it's so limiting. I remember saying, but I want to do some of this and some of that and some of this and some of that. And it was, you couldn't personalize it. You had to, we're always forced to fit in a box and it's, it's frustrating. You have to have like the gumption within you or the moxie just to use Amy Poehler's word, but that thing to just keep pushing yourself and there is no final destination, you know? Yeah. Just to speak to what Sue was yeah. saying before, that there's also like, there's no, that there should be no shame in, in separating what you do for financial work and also what you do for pleasure and for fulfillment. And I think that it's very like that financial reality, first of all, it's an absolute privilege to be able to choose what it is that you get to do to earn money, to support your family. You know, not Absolutely, everyone is yeah. in that position to do that. And I, I remember right after we closed the store, I took a job working at a preschool, working three mornings a week. And I had a lot of kind of like fear around taking that job and what it meant. And at the end of the day, it was like the perfect opportunity for me to like get silly with children, to put away all of my own seriousness and self-importance and to really get on the level of children and play, right? It was a play to learn kind of establishment. And I realized yeah. that I needed to learn how to play because I had forgotten. I had gotten so in my head about where I was going and what was important and what wasn't. 
And so that one job that I had judged is like, is this beneath me, you know, um, to do ended up being the most pivotal work experience of my life. And it only lasted two years. And it was just, I wouldn't ever trade that back. And so I think it's really, it's really important sometimes to do the things that you need to do, you know, um, because you never know what the lesson is going to be in there. I it's love so true. true. You guys have all made amazing points because it's absolutely so true. And I think there's also like, I'm going to bring up a, a quote that I was really eye-opening for me from the second episode about asking for help is this idea of living through the eyes of others. And I think mm. even if we don't think of ourselves as someone, as a person that kind of needs to please other people or cares what other people think, there is kind of this asking of yourself, am I a failure if I'm doing X, Y, Z? Like, have I let myself down? I think now with social media, that's even pushed up a notch. And so I'm wondering how you guys kind of live with, like, how do you define success for yourself in a world where, you know, we're kind of pushed to share everything? I know, Emmeline, you've taken a huge hiatus, which is so great. And I took one in January. How do you define success for yourself? And is it always changing? Or I think for me, I think your mental health indicates or gives you that acknowledgement of, okay, you're doing well right now. I think anyone who's gone through anything, suffered anything, been through depression, even just a lull in life, just a down, when you're going day by day, and you're in a great place, and you feel content, I mean, and you're happy and you're moving and you're making strides and you're interested in things and you're learning and you're just excited to be, I think that is as successful as you can possibly hope to be, regardless of what you accomplish or where you're going or what you've done. If you're just okay to be and you're happy, that's huge. Mm. I love that. That's so true. Mm -hmm. It just... Mm -hmm. It kind of alludes to what Annabelle was talking about. Like if your body feels good and your mind feels good, trust that. Yeah. The rest is just icing on the cake. Like it's all good. <laughs> yeah. That I said, I have a cake in the oven for my son's 15th birthday and I've got to go now and take it out immediately. <laughs> Avia just came in and she's like, I don't know how to take the cake out of the oven. I'm like, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> thank you ladies thank you Angelique this was Again, amazing this is so interesting and amazing and I love speaking to you girls this was yeah, so I amazing I miss you all so much same Just love you all so much and Emmeline hope baby is doing well yeah thank you thanks mm -hmm. for this no better way to start a Monday morning actually I have to say this was oh, great. This was great. Yeah. This was really good. That's the end of our conversation that we had. Like Emmeline said, on a Monday morning at nine o'clock, I was in my car and my daughter was sick and I couldn't be in the house. So for me, just an incredible conversation. Maybe we don't have all the answers, but it's about asking those questions. And by sharing that exploration, it really relieved a lot of concerns that I've had and shame that I've lived with in my life, not having the answers, having a career that has had its ups and downs and been 
more of a roller coaster than really a straight line. It always makes me feel better to talk to other people who get where I'm coming from. And it also reminds me that I'm not the only one in this situation. I think sometimes from the outside, other people's lives look so figured out and on purpose. And the more I scratch the surface and talk to people, the more I realize, nope, none of us do. We're all figuring it out as we go along. And I just find that so beautiful and it makes me feel connected to people. And I just love what Sue said, which is, you know, if it works for you and it's making you happy and to Annabelle's point, if your body feels good, listen to those things because ultimately that's what matters. And to Emmeline's point about choosing boundaries for yourself, I think that's what it's always about. What are the rules that that you want to follow that work for you? And what boundaries do you need to put in place with yourself so that you are as happy and your mental health is as strong as it can be? And I think those are the questions that matter and I'm going to explore more and I feel so honored to have these women in my life and I'm so grateful that they share because I think it can be really helpful. Maybe <laughs> you have it all figured out, but I hope you feel a little less heavy and feel liberated. <music>